Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady, of course, for leading us in worship this morning. We're so excited for our VBS to be kicking off tonight. If you have children that have not been registered yet for that, you can go to harrisonhills.org and and do that there, and be inviting your neighbors, your families, friends with children as well. If you desire to serve, we have many opportunities for that, for service. We need you, so please see Dawn for that. Still, what a joy it is this morning to dig for the treasures in God's Word. Not only the beautiful gems that float along the top for us to scoop up, but the diamonds that are buried deep within that reward those who wish to plumb the depths and who labor in the text. So great are the riches, the exhortations and the encouragements, even the doctrinal truths that create the very bones of the text. You know, I was considering just such riches in Jesus' words in John 27 and 28. If you will this morning, put your finger in Mark quickly and turn with me to John this morning. Turn with me over to John chapter 10, 27 through 28. This is just a little bonus for us this morning. In just two verses, in fact, very short verses, we see six major biblical doctrines. Can you believe that? In the words of Christ, very familiar, Jesus declares in this text, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, what doctrine do we see first? My sheep. Now here Jesus enumerates the glorious doctrine of divine election. While the whole world marches with great enthusiasm toward eternal destruction, God in His divine providence has mercifully stopped many on that path, turning them towards Him. This He knew from before the world was ever created. Ephesians 1, Romans 9, John 6. And how do we know that is what Jesus speaks of here when He says, My sheep. Well, we know it from the context. Look at the verse immediately preceding it in verse 26. Look closely. Pressing in towards understanding. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Does Jesus say you are not my sheep because you do not believe? No. He said you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Only Christ can make dead men live. And we were all dead in our sins before He made us alive. You are His sheep. Not because you believe. You believe because you are His sheep. These are Jesus' words. What else in John? My sheep. What? Hear my voice. There's vocation. He saved you. Now you have a job to do. You hear His voice. You can now work. You can now respond. What's next? And I know them. Beloved, that's justification. Justification is an act of God whereby He pronounces a sinner to be righteous. Because of that sinner's faith in Christ, it happens instantly at salvation. Notice it does not say when you know Christ, you are justified. It's when Christ first knows you. 
Why do evangelicals ask if you know Jesus? That is an irrelevant question. The question is not if you know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know you? On that day, Jesus will say to the ungodly, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And again here in John, and I know them. The moment we put our faith and trust in Christ, enabled by His Spirit, we are justified before God because of Christ, 100%. We can never add anything to it. We can never be more justified. It is done. So we have one, election, my sheep. Two, vocation, hear my voice. Three, justification, and I know them. What's next in verse 27? And they follow me. That's sanctification. Walking along the pathway of growth in Christ. Remember, justification is instant at the moment of conversion. Sanctification, meaning that that process of God changing you into the image of His Son, that takes a lifetime. And it never stops. It is the process of following Christ. What's next? And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Guess what that is? That's glorification. Eternal life, raised in Christ for an eternity with Him. And all three of those, justification, sanctification, glorification, are all three guaranteed for the believer. For those whom He justifies, He sanctifies. And those whom He sanctifies, He glorifies. He's going to bring you all the way through. If He saved you, He's going to keep you all the way. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Which leads us exactly to our sixth doctrine packed into verse 28. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. This is often called the perseverance of the saints or the eternal security of the believer. If you are his sheep, no one can come in the sheep pen and snatch you away. Your shepherd never sleeps. And nothing is more powerful than the grasp of the good shepherd over his bride, his sheep. But while it's often called the perseverance of the saints, it is much better said that it is not us who is persevering to the end, but it is Christ in us that preserves to the end. It is the perseverance of Christ in His saints that gets us to the finish line. What beauty packed into such a short verse. Election, vocation, justification, sanctification, glorification, and the perseverance of Christ in His sheep. That is the mighty power of the Word that you hold in your hands this morning. Such riches that we might know Him. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we broke from our series and last things to revisit a topic that's near and dear to the heart of this congregation, that of expository preaching, answering the question why we preach as we do. How is it that a congregation can spend three years in the gospel of Mark, verse by verse? Why do we approach scripture in such a way? Looking not only to why we do it, but what are the consequences of not preaching expositionally? What are the devastating effects in evangelicalism of being fed a piecemeal topical diet? And the anemic and even the illiterate state that occurs 
When we do not preach and teach the Word of God as He gave it to us, in whole books, in whole letters, each with their own context, each with their own street address that tell us how to read it, how to understand it, and how to apply that text. And it was such a rich and full time of learning and encouragement. I know we had many that were gone last week for the force, so if you missed that message titled The God Who Speaks, Why Expository Preaching, I would encourage you to go back. It's on Facebook, it's on Sermon Audio, and give that a listen. Well, where we left off on our prior installment of Last Things, we finally reached what is really the crescendo of the human timeline. The event that all of human history is marching toward. After all the foundation and teaching, the, the build-up, the often hard yards of looking at the horrific times and events of both the tribulation and the great tribulation, we finally look to the second coming of Christ. What began in a garden with a, a serpent who was more crafty than all the other animals, tempting Eve, partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of course that ushering in sin, and the wages of that sin, wages meaning payment, the payment for that sin was death, physical death, spiritual death. Man fell, inextricably separated from the God who made them. And of course, even from Genesis 3, we see the first gospel proclamation. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Beloved, that means even as the serpent whispered in Eve's ear, the cross of Calvary was already in sight. And what an encouragement that should be to us this morning. Our very existence here this morning, as the purchased and ransomed of God, as part of the beloved, is not reactionary. We sit here this morning as a glorious part of plan A. And while that is glorious, and while we joyfully serve a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God, a compassionate God, a long-suffering God, we also serve a God who is just, and a God who is holy, and a God who is righteous, and a God who cannot look upon sin, that cannot reside alongside of it. We observe in Scripture that God is not only enacted his loving plan of the ages to save a people unto himself, but that he has enacted a plan to judge the world with a terrible finality. And we see both of these truths on dramatic and incredible display when Christ appears in the clouds. And Paul spoke plainly to the church in Thessalonica on this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. Paul declares, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And scripture tells us that the Son, when he returns, comes first to kill, that his robe is dipped in blood, John tells us from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. For the lost on that day, Isaiah 13, 8 declares that all hands will fall limp 
Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified, Isaiah says. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. When Jesus appears in flaming fire, setting their faces aflame, what will they do? Revelation 6 tells us that. We remember this. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they're going to hide themselves in the caves and amongst the rocks and the mountains. And they'll say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has, of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Beloved, these are often not attributes or, or sections of scripture that are taught on or that are focused on in our culture. And of course, that is to our peril. We are the bride of Christ and we wish to know all of him. Can we know him and love him rightly if we do not know him rightly? Do we know his head and his hair that are white like wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire? Do we know his feet that are like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace? Beloved, can grace be grasped flowing down from the throne of heaven until we first trembled before a holy God. Grace means nothing if there is no wrath. Mercy means nothing if there's no consequence to speak of. Salvation means nothing if there's nothing to be saved from. If the goodness of God is to be good, we must know all of him. John fell at his feet as a dead man when he beheld the risen Christ. Isaiah trembled before him when he saw the Lord on his throne, saying, Woe is me, I am ruined. Job beheld the majesty of God's power, and he put his hand over his mouth, saying, I'm not going to utter another word. Habakkuk complained to the Lord, and he demanded answers from God. And when God answered Habakkuk, he cried, my lips quivered, my belly trembled, and rottenness entered into my bones. So it is for those who encounter a holy God. And beloved, we serve the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If the reality of our sin and the magnitude of what we were saved from has never caused you to tremble in your heart in holiness, you'll never be able to lay hold of what we call amazing grace. Amazing grace. And thus we dove into the second coming of Christ on our last installment, the event that is really the very answer to the disciples' original question posed here on the Mount of Olives. What will be the sign of your return? And Jesus has responded, here are all the birth pains to get us there. But here's the sign. The baby born from the birth pains is Christ appearing in the skies. Against the blackness as the lights have gone out in the universe, every eye will see him, Jesus tells us in Luke 21. That there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations. 
in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So against the backdrop of the sun going dark, of the stars falling from the heavens, against the cold and the dark, comes the very glory cloud of heaven. The brightness of His coming. The Shekinah light and glory. And while Christ comes first to take vengeance and to mete out justice, He also comes to collect His people that remain. To keep His promise and His covenant with Israel. A full one-third of Israel He will keep. All the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. We've explored this, have we not? Everything must be brought full circle. There must be a reconciliation with the Messiah whom you pierced. There must be a reckoning with the Messiah whom you have pierced. Zechariah 12.10 declares, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn child. For the redeemed that are alive at the end of the tribulation, and there will be many who will escape the persecution. They will flee. If they read God's word, they will have known to run. They will have known to flee. God will protect them. Jesus said in Luke, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We marveled in our last message how the same incredible scene of Christ's return will cause one to lift up their heads and to lift up their eyes with joyful anticipation, knowing that their redemption is at the door. And the next person right next to them, their heart will fail them at the very same sight. Now with all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to the Son, John 5, having been given the title and deed to the earth, we saw the owner of it all finally touch down. We saw that when Christ returns, He will return to the exact place that He left. The exact place where He ascended back into heaven, the wonderful Mount of Olives. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Zechariah 14.4 tells us that the Mount of Olives will split into a large valley when Christ touches down, north to south. And that means that the Mediterranean is going to come flooding in. And it's going to fill up the deep sea, the Dead Sea. It's going to eradicate the desert. It's going to cause Zion to blossom and bloom where only desert once was. Isaiah 35. And so it will be for 1,000 wonderful years in the Millennial Kingdom. A time when the Lord declares through Isaiah where the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. 
And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days, on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Where the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. It was an incredible time looking and studying the second coming of our Lord, even having been raptured as his church, knowing that we will be in tow with him when he comes back, is something quite amazing to even ponder. It's almost more than we can wrap our heads around. The psalmist says, these things are too high for me. And today we're excited to look at really the final exhortations by Jesus in his Olivet Discourse. We're wrapping up Jesus' longest answer ever given to a question posed to him. Now, for those keeping track, we began the Olivet Discourse back in February. So we have been exploring this incredible teaching by our Lord for about six months now. And it's time to begin to bring it to a close with this last two-part series, titled The Fig Tree and the Doorkeeper. Again, we understand that the Olivet Discourse is not meant to be a a comprehensive, all-encompassing teaching on eschatology, on the study of last things. Remembering in summary that the Olivet Discourse, if you really boil it all down, is really God's future program for Israel. That's the point. That's the focus. That's the group in view. Thus, as Jesus closes this preview of what is to come, he speaks as he often does in parables or analogies. In our case, in Mark, we will see both the fig tree and the doorkeeper. Of course, you'll remember that Matthew's recording of this event, that's the most comprehensive, that's the most fleshed out, and there records four parables in closing. The first being the wicked servant who the master punishes him upon his return. That should make a lot more sense to us now. The next, the parable of the ten virgins, calling for readiness and watchfulness to be alert. The third parable, the story of the three servants and their stewardship of finances that we all must give an account. And Jesus ends his discourse in Matthew by telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. The pictures, that pictures the dividing of the saved from the unsaved at the end of the tribulation. Of course, Mark is always more truncated, right? He's always more shortened. So we're given two shorter parables, two shorter analogies to close out our time with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text, Mark 13, 28 through 31, Mark 13, 28 through 31. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great and precious promises are ours in Christ this morning. In this text, Lord, we may look and we may behold. Lord, we take counsel of the warning and counsel of the caution but, Lord, great joy at the promises and the hope that are contained. Holy Spirit, you know the need of every person that has come today. We ask that you would fill that need, that you would meet it, that you would touch them in their innermost being, Lord, in a way that only your word can. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some will remember through our journey in Mark, our time spent in Jesus' parables. We had the strong man in Mark 3, the parable of the soils in Mark 4, the mustard seed also in Mark 4. We had the wicked tenant in Mark 12. And here, with our fig tree, we come upon the last parable in Mark's gospel. And fitting because we are in Jesus' last day of public ministry. In fact, this would be the last hours of the last day of Jesus' public ministry. So it seems fitting that Jesus would conclude with his most loved method of teaching. So let us dive right in with so much to see, beginning with verse 28, beloved. Verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Now pause there. Now, baked into Jesus' opening statement here is a, is a crucial assumption, isn't there? The assumption being that you can understand what we're talking about here. This is not opaque. This is not fuzzy. This is not mystical. This is not too high and lofty to grasp. Learn this. Understand this. We can't even get past the first chapter of Revelation. It opens chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and hears and understands the words in this book. People flee from eschatology and the, the study of last things because they think it's too hard. They approach the book of Revelation like it's some impenetrable mountain of mystery that's unknowable. Or that it's a subject that has so much interpretation. Who can really know what it means? Beloved, if we read Revelation the same way we read the rest of our Bible, it's not complicated at all. People run into trouble when they begin to allegorize, when they stop taking the word literally and they spiritualize them. Then it becomes a jumbled mess of confusion. Then we have problems. Beloved, the Bible means what it says, and it says what it means. It is to be read historically, and grammatically, and contextually. Now, some of you know what that means. Some may not. If not, take notes. Look it up. Press in to learn. Ought we to know how to read our Bibles? Beloved, many have had years of lazy Christianity. How about the bride of Christ gets serious about her walk? Look it up. Press in for understanding. Jesus says in our text what? Now learn. Learn. John said in Revelation, learn, read, understand. So that's the assumption going into all this, isn't it? Now while we've covered vast swaths of territory during our, our six months in the Olivet Discourse, I pray it has brought clarity and simplicity to these subjects because we are meant to learn and understand it. And that in turn strengthens us. And it fills us. But lest we suffer from a category error, let us be reminded, our parable of the fig tree, who is this written to? Category, historical, grammatical, contextual. Who is this written to? Who does Jesus have in mind when he speaks this? Very simply, the parable of the fig tree is written to the saints of the tribulation. Jesus is speaking to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God has protected. He's speaking to those who have come to faith in Christ during this time of the tribulation that were able to escape the slaughter and the persecution. He's speaking to those who listened 
to the preaching of the 144,000 that listened to the angels proclaiming the gospel in the mid-heavens, that listened to the two witnesses, all of whom we've taught on extensively. Beloved, they are living in a time unimaginable. And they want to know, how do I know when my Savior is coming back? When will relief come? When will evil be crushed? When will the unrelenting persecution end? Those who have been with us from the beginning of our series know what the earth looks like at this point. Every day spent on that earth that it's being judged by God with a horrendous finality. Every day feels like a lifetime. There's no relief. There's no relaxation. There's no plentiful food or rest or comforts. We've taken great pains to describe the world's state upon which Christ will return. And while the church is gone at this point, it's raptured. Recall that we never hear a single peep about the church after Revelation 3. You know why? Because they're gone. But God will still save many in this time. And they want to know, when will you light up the sky? Back to our text. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. You know, most vegetation, most greenery in the land of Israel is evergreen. It doesn't really change much with the seasons, but not the fig. It's one of the few that do. Not only that, but they're the latest bloomers in spring. So if the fig is bringing forth its leaves, summer is near, very near. Now that lends color and clarity to what Jesus says next. Verse 29, verse 29. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. There's no confusion here in Jesus' words. Even so, you too. Who's the you here? Believers alive in the great tribulation. When you see these things happening, what thing's happening? Everything we've read about from verses 6 to 23. Of course, going into overdrive at the abomination of desolation, right in the middle, verse 14. That kicks off the worst of it. When you see these things, when you see these birth pains that we've described in detail, look up, look to the sky, your redemption is near. I'm close. Oftentimes, people will use these parables like the fig tree to apply to us right here, right now, right? That we're watching for the signs, we're watching for this war and for that war. It's the season, it's the season, right? The fig leaves are out. No, beloved. Wars, famine, disease have always marred the landscape of our fallen world. That is what we see today. That is a foretaste. That is a reminder of what is coming. But understand this. This is going to be helpful for so many who are uh, confused what applies to whom where. Theologian Warren Wearsby, he puts it so well. He writes, quote, As Christian believers today, we are not looking for signs of his coming. We are looking for him. Get that. We're looking for him. That's so critical. That's such a distinction. We must understand 
understand what the Olivet Discourse is and who it is written to and who the parable of the fig tree is given to. Who is to know the season of the leaves? It is the saints of the tribulation. Speaking of this, Warren Wearsby, he goes on, quote, but people living during the tribulation will be able to watch these things occur and will know that his coming is near. This assurance will help them to endure and to be good witnesses, close quote. So beloved, this understanding must be in place or we're going to stumble right away as we arrive at our next verse in verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me, beloved. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, you'll remember from our detour last week into explaining expository preaching for some of our new members that we talked about the street address of a verse. That when we read the book, the letter as God gave it, beginning to end, we keep ourselves in context. And here is a great example. If we just moseyed on into Mark with no context, and we went right to Mark 13.30 and we plucked it out, we might have some questions. Wait a minute. It says this generation will not pass until all this is going to happen. What generation? Jesus' generation? The generation of the disciples? The people alive as Jesus is speaking right then and there? If one had not studied this systematically from the beginning as we've done, you could think that. And people do. They're called preterists. They think Jesus has already returned. But it was only spiritually. And they believe that all of this, the entire Olivet Discourse, all of Revelation, was all accomplished in 70 AD with the sacking of Jerusalem. Of course, not to be ungenerous of spirit, but that's not just foolish. It's a terrible and an inconsistent hermeneutic, meaning the way that we read and interpret our Bible. Preterists would say that all of Revelation is past. It's historical, they say. Well, together we have gone through much of Revelation in our study. We've looked at the bull and the trumpet judgments, the four horsemen. None of those things happened. Not even close in 70 A.D. Not to mention that Revelation was written around 96 A.D. after the collapse of Jerusalem. None of this was written down at the time of Jerusalem's falling. Not only that, but look down in your Bibles, beloved, in Mark 13, where you are. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, what does Jesus say? Does Christ say, let those who are hearing me right now understand? Does he say, hey, disciples, understand this? What does he say right in the middle of verse 14? Let the reader understand. Those who will read this in the future understand. This is all future. And I hammer that home not because of a, a bone to pick with a, a particular bend of theology, but because when we take all of Revelation... All of the tribulation, all of the great tribulation, the Olivet Discourse, as we try to cram that all into A.D. 70, ignoring vast swaths of events, we neuter, we dissolve, we concede one of the greatest auxiliaries to warn sinners. We already have a world that scoffs at the idea of a being in the sky who will execute judgment on his creation. 
And now we have structured theologies that are taught in the church that are saying the same thing. And boy, is it popular. Let the reader understand. So back to our text. So this generation, now we know, refers to the generation that sees these things happen. Those that would see the abomination, those who would see the heavens shake and the stars fall and the oceans and rivers turn to blood and the majority of the world killed by plague and famine, the list goes on, all of which we've taught on. The generation that sees those things, they will be the ones to see my return. That's what that means. That's what that means, beloved. And we can trust it. Why? Verse 31. Verse 31. Because heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Now most know this verse. This wonderful saying of Christ. But beloved, if we grasp the extent of its meaning. And bask in the glorious application of its truth. It is far greater than we can imagine. Of course, Jesus has used this phraseology before. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells those who are gathered, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 16, 17, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Why? Because the word of God stands. It stands. Isaiah declares that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It is permanent, unyielding. Nothing can match it or challenge it. Men have spent their fortunes to disprove it and failed. Even as the universe is upheld by the word of that very power, Hebrews tells us, it has reached down through the ages, past and present, and it's never failed. And it commands the future, and every molecule obeys. It is immutable. It is unassailable. Who can bring a charge against it? The Lord declares through Isaiah, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That word, the decreed word of God, is sovereign over every life today. As we breathe in and breathe out, it is the power of His Word that upholds and sustains us. Who can add to it? Many have tried. Who can take away from it? Who can subtract from it? Many have tried. All are brought to ruin. Back to our text. What exactly are we speaking of here? Heaven and earth passing away. <laughs> But we haven't time to delve deeply into this. It's a, a whole other area of study. But to summarize, after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, where Christ has returned to reign with His people on the earth, after that time, Scripture tells us that the earth is going to be altered. It's going to be burned. It's going to be laid bare. It's going to be remade and fashioned for eternity. For eternity. There will no longer be a dramatic distinction necessarily between heaven and earth 
as there is today. Ephesians 1.10 points to that. I love the sound of crying babies. They say, if you're not crying, you're dying. I like it. So understand, okay, that even when Christ returns to rule and reign for a thousand years, sin will still be present. Why? There are many people being born in a thousand years of time. It's a thousand years. Who even with Christ on the throne will not serve Him. They will not worship Him. Lost people will be on the earth once again. And in fact, we know that Satan will even be released again from the pit after that thousand years. Revelation 20. And it is only after that that Satan will be put down for good. It is then and there where we will see the final and the great white throne judgment. Understand that is not for believers. That is for the lost. It is there we see the final sentencing for the wicked for eternity cast into the lake of fire. Believers will appear before the Bema seat of Christ to receive rewards and to give an account of himself to God. Romans 14.10 Paul tells the Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the same thing as the Bema seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the beam of seat of Christ is not to determine your salvation. You are secure. Your debt has been paid by Christ. It is here that we will appear before Christ to give an account. It will be a time of examination by Christ. What have we done with what He gave us? How faithful were we? Make no mistake, there will be sadness at the beam of seat of Christ. We will see missed opportunities. We will see lost reward. But we will also see reward. We will also see crowns given. This is how our Bible closes out in Revelation 22. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. That is meant to be a wonderful promise and a cracking of the whip. For his children, we will give an account. Back to our text once again. Heaven and earth will pass away. Beloved, everything we see around us is temporal. Everything. Even here, the earth upon which Jesus has returned to, and that he sits upon the throne of David, ruling for a thousand years, even that will be consumed and remain and remade. Because there is sin once again in the millennium. The new heavens and the new earth must be remade perfect for eternity. No sin or stain remains. That old earth, meaning the earth we stand upon now, and the same earth which Jesus will return and rule and reign for a thousand years upon, will pass away. And what will remain forever? What will abide forever? The Word of God. The Word of God. What comfort might that bring to the sufferer in Christ? What alignment of priorities might that give to those who are prosperous and wealthy in this life? What surety? What boldness? Having in our hands the very word that will transcend and outlast everything we see around us. That is a glory. What a promise. Not only for us, but those for whom this message is intended. 
I pray this sermon is preserved for them and that they may hear it, that His word is sure and fixed. Take heart. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the very famous French philosopher Voltaire. And that's a bit ironic that few will remember Voltaire because he boldly and publicly predicted that within 50 years, people would no longer remember this Jesus. He would fade just like every other. Philip Ryken, he writes that it was a rash prediction because the very year that Voltaire said this, the British Museum paid half a million pounds to purchase an ancient Bible manuscript. While at the same time, a book of Voltaire's atheistic and agnostic writings was selling for eight pence in the London bookstalls. But move forward 50 years to witness an even greater irony. God is not mocked. After Voltaire died, the philosopher's home in Geneva was eventually purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. 50 years to the day after the philosopher's outrageous prediction, the presses in his very own home were printing thousands of Bibles every day. Every copy, every copy printed from there included the words written in French, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Beloved, that truth reigns over every one of our lives this morning. If you are born again and saved, His Word is sovereign over your life. If you do not know Christ, if you've never come to Him in repentance and faith, today's a great day to do that. But know this, His Word is still sovereign over your life. It still commands your eternity. Whether we acknowledge Christ or not does not determine whether or not His Word carries authority over us. He is Lord over all creation. And we will either appear before the Bema seat of Christ for our reward as believers, or we will appear before the great white throne to be judged as those who have rejected God's call to salvation. That is the call this morning. Beloved, that is the entire purpose of looking toward the end times and all that will occur. That the believer might be encouraged and that the sinner be called to repentance. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What a glorious day to surrender to such a truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word does reign supreme over us this morning. For whether we are lost or saved, it is the authority to which we are all subjected. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we hold it in our hands that the reality of what it is, that the truth of it would be made new to us this morning. That it is more sure than everything we see around us. Everything that fades, Lord, it is true and it is good and it is perfect. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with those that are not with us today, with those that are out traveling for the holidays. We ask that you would keep 
us until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.